back to Game Study Study Buddies, where we read books and game studies and talk about them. I've forgotten the thing that we normally say at the top. Uh, I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. I didn't have it here in front of me, and that's how you know this is a slam dunk operation. We are uh, we're on episode 23. Woo! 23, the most mysterious number. It, well, it's not the loneliest number, I'll tell you that. Uh-huh. Uh, this episode, we're going to be reading Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's Flow. Uh, it's got a, it's got a flow, the psychology of optimal experience. Uh, it's a popular press book from 1990. Um, we'll get into kind of the the stuff behind it in just a bit. Kind of some some additional biography for it. If you're not familiar with the show, if this is your first episode you're listening to, uh, Michael and I are, are both people uh, who work in game studies um and this is a show where it's kind of like taking a graduate seminar with the two of us we're just reading or or hanging out in a book club maybe Mm -hmm. read the book we talk about its assumptions we talk about how it works we talk about how the argument progresses and uh we just have a discussion about it um the purpose behind the show is to to, uh one uh, talk about game studies books which we like doing um two uh kind of put those in context with one another and three make those things more accessible for people who are interested in these things but either don't have time to read the whole book or don't have the expertise um we've got the expertise and and boy do we have the time (laughs) (laughs) oh do we i guess i should say (laughs) we just talked about this before the show but um just to give some some ideas about uh, the the person who did this, we normally talk bibliography or, or no, not bibliography, but biography. Here at the top of the show, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is a uh, currently a ooh, distinguished professor of psychology and management at Claremont Graduate University. He is older now. Um, Michael, do you have an idea of exactly how old he is? <laughs> just, he's older now than he was before. Um, wow, well, he's 85. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, he's born in 34, so. Um, oh, yeah, so what, 86 then, right? Yeah, something like Unless, that. Uh, yeah, like, uh, they only update his Wikipedia page once a year, <laughs> so, so we don't get it the day it flips over. Anyway, he's, he's in his 80s, in his mid-80s, um, and he has been writing works around academia or in academia. He, he holds a PhD from the University of Chicago that he um, got in, I'm looking here, the 1960s. He's a professor at the University of Chicago by 1969. And he's been writing books around flow, the concept of flow, which we'll get into in just a minute. Uh, he's been writing books around this concept, that concept since that time. right? So this is kind of his PhD work. And this has become his career. The book that we are talking about today um, is from 1990. And like I said before, it is the popular press kind of version. It's the the big idea version of the book. Um, But it's also, I would say, the version of the book and version of the argument that gets talked about the most in-game studies kind of across the board. So we did that. Michael, you have done a wonderful thing, which is read a second book. (laughs) In order to prepare for this book, can you can you, you want to say a little bit about your kind of uh, research process here? Yeah. So uh, the the thing that strikes me, I, this is a thing that is always interesting to me, is uh, we have this popular press book from 1990, and when we say popular press, right, this is this is the version that is written uh, for kind of anyone to pick up and read, right? This is the version that is written to be on the New York Times bestseller list. 
however, the research uh, that Csikszentmihalyi was doing prior to this popular press book uh, gets published in his first work on flow, which is a 1975 book called Beyond Boredom and Anxiety, Experiencing Flow in Work and Play. Uh, so I decided I was going to go back and, uh, you know, sort of lightly read through, well, it ended up being nice to lightly read through it because it turns out it's shorter. Um hmm reading through that uh, actual academic research book to compare it to the popular press version and see, you know, what uh, what are the things that get left out? Um, what are kind of the, the points that are raised in 1975 that he follows through on um, later and things, things of that nature. So you, you've kind of, uh, you know, we've been talking in the, in the month that, that, You've been doing this kind of background research or additional research, and so you've got some kind of additional context, I think, to, to give us for the book, which is going to be really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, this is a little bit of a different episode, too, right? I mean, normally, the way that we would go through a book is we, you know, talk about it a little bit up top, kind of big, broad, conceptual stuff, and then we go through chapter by chapter and talk about that. But we're not doing that this time. Yes, the, the book does not lend itself to that sort of discussion. <laughs> um and and the reason that it doesn't lend itself to to that right is that you know just to be frank about it this is by virtue of being a popular press book like you're like michael was saying right the by by virtue of it being a popular press book it's one that's meant for anyone to kind of pick up and read and the vibe of the book is kind of um anyone can pick up any chapter in any order basically and read it Mm -hmm. Um, you know, this is not a book that I, that I tell me if you think I'm wrong here, Michael, but, uh, it's not a book that kind of evolves over the course of the book. We don't begin somewhere and end somewhere else. Right. No, this is very much, uh, again, being sort of a popular press book. It's like the first one or two chapters is here is my idea. Here is how this idea works. And then, uh, all subsequent chapters are just things like here is how this idea relates to sports right here is how this idea relates to parenting um and it, it doesn't like complicate the idea it's just sort of an illustration or demonstration of the ideas functioning in in various uh contexts yeah and and kind of you know one strategy for writing books right is to to take you know so so take for example our uh our the last book we did olinda chang's um uh playing nature Plain Nature? Yes. I don't know. I don't know why I thought I was like, oh, that, that can't be the title. But that is the title. I always, I keep getting that book. And I think he even did it during the episode. I keep flipping it. I keep thinking it's Ecology and Games, colon, Plain Nature. But it's the, <laughs> the other way around. But, uh, but so, you know, a lot of books will take like the big key idea, right? And then each chapter might be a different example. And it's basically, you know, uh, kind of dialectical, right? What happens when I take this, take this example and take my idea that I have in this book and smash them into each other, right? What gets produced that's new out of that encounter? Right. You know, that's that's a fairly common way to write an academic book, but that's not happening in flow. It's literally each chapter is here are examples of flow in the body. Here are examples of flow in sports, uh, you know, like, like you're saying, Michael. So like the, the, the thing doesn't transform or shift. I wouldn't say that very much is added to the book uh, other than just illustrations or examples from chapter two until the last chapter the last chapter does add some stuff to the book i think but beyond that it's really just like here's a different way of of, of approaching it but that's all to say that's uh you know uh, a lot of wind up um so michael how are we approaching this book 
so we are going to here up top after all of our contextualization, we're going to give an overview of what this book's claim is sort of in, in the, the clearest, uh, most direct terms, like very little commentary, just here's what this book is about. Um, then we're going to have uh, a little bit of back and forth where you and I maybe editorialize a little bit on some of these claims, uh, point out places in the text that uh, we just think deserve to be uh, uh, have attention drawn to them um, because of how how this argument works, right? Sort of drawing attention, first of all, right, here is the book's argument, and then sort of second of all, here are the things that the argument doesn't, doesn't necessarily highlight um, in ways that uh, might be interesting to look at. Uh, and then we're going to sort of go over a couple of questions that we've written each other about this book and kind of the nature of it uh, and sort of the nature of, of the claims that it's making um, and how those relate to game studies or other various sort of intellectual concerns we may have. Yeah, the, because I, you know, my, you know, I can say up top here and I've been tweeting about this uh, already since I kind of closed up and finally finished the book uh um, yesterday. This is a book that I am very surprised has gone as far as it has. Um, you know, flow at at its bottom, you, you know, at, at the core. Flow is a very common game studies argument. If you want to look at for just a thing that shows up across game studies to illustrate various different points about how players interact with games or questions of immersion or questions of interaction, flow is going to show up in nearly all of those places, right? It's kind of the the standard stamp of here's an approach that that uh, people use. And that doesn't mean people are necessarily defending it, but they are certainly evoking it and invoking it. Um, and when we get to the editorializing, when we get to the questions, I have some very um, just kind of pointed questions about that. I, I think um, I've, I I was very shocked, and I think you were too, Michael, not to, not to step on your opinion here, but um, <laughs> I think we were both very shocked at what happens in this book and the way that proof is generated in this book and then how that has made its way into game studies. Mm -hmm. would, you, would you say that that is accurate? Absolutely. I first encountered flow uh, when I was an undergrad. It was like my intro to psychology course, and it happened to be sort of one of the pet theories of the professor who was teaching that course. Um, and they were interested in it primarily as they were interested in sort of the psychology of creativity, um, hmm. which is, you know, a thing that you can be interested in. But they were interested in flow as uh, uh a, a, a conduit for creative thinking and so on and so forth. So that was how I had first encountered it. Um, and even going, like, that was when I was an, an, an undergrad, right? I had whatever thoughts on it then. Going back to this now, it is deeply surprising to me that, a, like, that this is a thing people talk about, right? Like, I'm just going to be upfront and be like, that... Like that will be that will be my my sort of first reaction that there is there is a lot of questions that I have about how this has made its way into other other fields of academic study. Yeah, same. Um, but we we will get to those. Um, and and two, I don't know if you notice this. I don't know if you like look at the bibliography. And my copy of the book actually has us uh, like an excerpt from this in the back of it, kind of like a little promo. But uh, me High wrote straight up just wrote a book about creativity in 1996. It's called Creativity, Flow in the Psychology of Discovery and Invention. 
Um, so, you know, uh, the, you know, there is a really direct, uh, oh, and actually in 2014 too, the systems model of creativity, the collected works of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Mihai. Uh, okay. and that's actually, it looks like it's a Springer book. So that might be a textbook. So definitely in that kind of creativity studies, uh, I think that, that he gets invoked there. And yeah, I absolutely, I, I mean, I would say that my introduction to, to these arguments almost entirely came out of reading game studies books and papers and just seeing it kind of evoked there. And then having conversations, being very lucky to have conversations with when I was in my master's with doctoral students who just, you know, were game studies people. And so we're chatting about it. So that was kind of my introduction to it. Uh, you know, I think I've said before, other than kind of self-directed reading, I didn't have any undergraduate um, education in games or anything like it. Um, but that's all to say, I, I really encountered that again when I was doing my graduate work and I was working in a creative media industries Institute. <laughs> so yeah, let's, uh, let's lay out what, what flow is, uh, you know, Michael, you've been in deep in the flow mines recently, you know, mining out this insight, reading the original book, getting the stuff. I mean, what, what's the definition of flow? Well, um, Flow is the proposed name for a psychological state, um, subjective experience that uh, one has when the, the fullness of one's attention is focused on a task at hand, uh, and that task is challenging, but not too challenging, right? Not so challenging to inspire fear of failure um, or anxiety about that, and also not too easy to inspire boredom. Um, there is a, 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 a sort of totalization of individual focus on the activity such that one can focus on the activity to, to the exclusion of everything else. Um, very often uh, a thing that comes up in description of flow states is uh, like losing track of time. And the, the, the sort of follow-on claim, right, is, is a feeling of discovery or accomplishment made uh, while sort of doing the flow activity. Um, so is, do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think those are all because there, you know, there's a um, I forget which chapter it is. It might be chapter four where Chicks Like Me High lists out, right? Like all of the different kind of, I think there are eight different kind of qualifiers for flow, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost like a, a series of if then statements. If you have this, and then if you have this, and then if you have this, and if you have this, then therefore you are experiencing flow, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's all the things that you just said. I think the, the, the most condensed definition that shows up in the book and, and this is something I think it's a little bit surprising. What you just said is like a big constellation of, of things. And a, a listener might think, oh, Michael just gave me a big constellation of things. That doesn't really sound like a definition, but, but lo and behold, listener, that's how the definition of flow plays out in this book. Mm -hmm. it's we don't really get i mean i'm, I'm gonna, about to read a sentence that i think is like the pithiest definition possible but but what what you just did michael is the the way that it gets defined right it's um you will know it by its acts right yes <laughs> you will know it by by experiencing it and knowing it in the world and there are some qualifiers that help you identify it but the we get so many uh examples of what it could be that I think that if you did not, if you weren't looking at those examples with flow in mind, you would think those things have nothing to do with one another. Here, here are a few things that are flow. 
Oh, wait. Actually, b- b- before you do that, let me read the short definition. Okay, do and that. Then, do that. So, so what I think... So the short definition will be helpful, right? Because, you know, this is on page four. It says, quote, Flow is the state in which people are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. Mm-hmm. End quote. Um, and also, right after that, says it's universal and it's not culturally specific, right? So anyone yep. has access to it. Uh, there's some qualifiers to that, but anyone theoretically has access to it. With that, like, kind of shortest statement in mind, now, Michael, mm-hmm. <laughs> read the different things that are flow. So the three things that uh, show up again and again, right, as, as sort of premier flow activities are uh, competitive chess playing, mm-hmm. rock climbing, performing surgery, listening to classical music. This I'm moving in. I'm moving sort of further, further afield here. But listening to classical music very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, counting in your head during a meeting when you get bored. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, waking up in your village in the Swiss Alps at four o'clock in the morning to go out and tend to your dairy cows. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing basketball. Uh, being included in a poetry workshop, uh, when you are an elderly person in, in a retirement community. Uh, uh um, let me see some other things. Uh, I've got a couple just off okay. the top, off the dome yeah. here. Yeah, go uh, ahead. Working, working in a, uh, projector factory. Yes. Working in an additional other unrelated factory. Uh-huh. Uh, being homeless. Uh-huh. Being homeless is one. I'm yep. not, I'm not <laughs> listener. You might say impossible. No, right. surely, surely, Michael and Cameron are being deeply ungenerous here. Surely, you must be thinking, but no. <laughs> uh, solving mental puzzles, mm-hmm. and of course, uh, Michael, making sure the trains run on time. Uh huh. Literally, literally. Uh, I we'll talk about this later. I'm sure, but but Eichmann. Uh, managing the train system for the Nazis is evoked as a uh, potential flow. So all the things that you that we're listing here, right? They seem like just random stuff, and you would be um, uh, right to point out that yeah, like as you're saying, Michael. Oh, they're just being ungenerous. But but the kind of core here, right? And and this is without editorializing. This is the the argument, right? That all of that anything that you do. Any activity that you perform can be performed within a flow state. Mm-hmm. You you can warp anything into a um, an experiential into an experience that is pleasurable and happiness inducing if you approach it in the right way. Right. No. Another example that is very a very good illustration of how weird this can get is he gives the entire intellectual development of a boy as like a teenager to an adult who decides to become a marine biologist as an example of flow. Mm -hmm. Right? Like that entire intellectual trajectory from being a teen who goes scuba diving once and gets interested in the ocean to becoming a marine biologist. Like that is, that is put forth as as an example of, of someone who was demonstrating flow. You know, just, just to put it frankly, right? The, the argument of flow, which is developed, I'm curious, I, I want to hear in just a second, Michael, how, how this kind of um, 
how this is articulated differently in 1975 versus 1990. But the 1990 book that we read is at the bottom, I think, a self-help book. Mm -hmm. It is a book about how to approach problems in your life and how to approach your life in general, much like the marine biologist child. Um, how to approach your life in such a way to warp it toward the desires you want. He repeatedly, over and over in this book, uh, asserts that, because they're, uh, you know, chapter two is called The Anatomy of Consciousness. This, this book is deeply interested. He's a psychologist. Um, this book is interested in psychology as a kind of mediator for all kind of experience in the world, meaning that if you get your mind right, then there's nothing you can't achieve. Mm-hmm. And so he says, you know, like, look, consciousness is a mediating system between uh, the, the biology of the body and the world. That means that every activity passes through consciousness and through intentionality, through practice, through discipline, through whatever. You can use that, that kind of framing device of consciousness. You know, if it's kind of like uh, very similar, like if you know you're in a dream, you can then begin doing whatever you want to do in the dream. Mm-hmm. Right. And the kind of active dreaming stuff, uh, yes. lucid dreaming. It's, you know, flow is lucid dreaming for the real world. If you understand that you can make anything good by applying the methodology of flow to it or anything pleasurable by doing it, and you align that with positive life goals, then therefore you can be perfectly happy in your life and you can achieve whatever goals you want. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that all? That's all. Do you think that is a fair summary of what's going on here? Absolutely. The definition of consciousness that we get, and this is in the second chapter, I'm just going to read this. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, The function of consciousness, this is pages uh, like 23 and 24. The function of consciousness is to represent information about what is happening outside and inside the organism in such a way that it can be evaluated and acted upon by the body. In this sense, it, that is to say consciousness, functions as a clearinghouse for sensations, perceptions, feelings, and ideas, establishing priorities among all the diverse information. Without consciousness, we would still know, quote-unquote, what is going on, but we would have to react to it in a reflexive, instinctive way. Uh, and the, like, so the picture of consciousness here is that it is the thing that allows us to be self, like, reflexive about our own experiences and about kind of like our interior and exterior states. Uh, and what overall uh, Csikszentmihalyi is advocating for is this way of moving orthogonally to your own thought process and uh, being very intentional and direct about it, right? Not just uh, sort of responding to things, but uh, sort of like evaluating your own experience at such a remove that you can then order the information being given to you in a way that will uh, allow you to make whatever situation you're in into a flow experience. This is it. This is the whole book. Yep. Like no more complicated. Uh, Some slight uh, evolution of the arguments or slight movement in the argument, but but, uh, just in that last chapter really. But uh, beyond that, this is, like we were saying a few minutes ago, every chapter is just a different way of proving this to be true. Mm-hmm. And, and what it might be like, for example, there, you know, there's a chapter on flow in the body. And so he talks about visual and auditory perception um, and how one might be able to, you know, one of the examples you <laughs> gave, Michael, is listening to music really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he talks about what it means to get into a flow state with music um, and what it means to get into a flow state while looking at visual images. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but there's 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 no more of that here. In the 1975 book, is this more complicated, less complicated? So what is interesting about the 1975 book is that in the end, it is very interested in flow, um, but it also does not put forth flow as quite the the panacea that this book does. Um, as you said, that this book is is ultimately a self the, the 1990 book is ultimately a self help book telling you the reader that you need more flow in your. Are you unhappy? Right, like that's the that's the 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 interpolation of the self help book. Right, are you unhappy? Then do this. Right, here's how you solve this problem of being unhappy. Um, the the nineteen seventy five book, uh, the the question that seems to have started him on this research is, and this is like the the complications are clear right off the bat. But the question is, you know, what is it that motivates people to do things uh, that are like what uh, he variously calls kind of non-traditionally rewarding or sort of unusual high-stress activities? Um, so things specifically like rock climbing or doing surgery, right? The, the question uh, that seems to have started his research is like, why do people do these things um, that on the one hand, right, I think you and I probably both agree, right, rock, rock climbing and surgery are both very, very hard. Um, and I would not want to do surgery uh, or rock climbing after a certain, certain uh, you know, scale of difficulty. Um, the, the, the question that is motivating his research is, like, what are people getting out of these things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and already you can see sort of the problem of, like, well, why do people want to be surgeons? Because a surgeon is a like profession with a high amount of cultural prestige, and you get paid a buttload of money to do it. <laughs> but he's he's acting like yeah. surgery is this weird thing that oh no one really wants to do. I don't understand. It's like it's like people are sitting around talking to each other, being like, I don't know why you would do surgery. Like I just don't get it. Um, <laughs> like a man with a big mustache is like, "Egad!" Yeah. And his, yes. his monocle flies off. He's like, "A surgeon, your son? Yeah. Oh gosh, um, you. <laughs> and sort of like similarly with uh, rock climbers and professional competitive chess players, right? Like maybe they not they're not as high prestige as a surgeon, but like if you become a really good chess player, then people who give a damn about chess very much respect you, and you can get a, a you know a lot of money or like you know sort of prestige within a kind of a uh, social circle right by by being part of the professional chess circuit um sa same thing with rock climbing to think too right to think about the history of play for just a second right 1975 we were fighting the cold war with chess <laughs> you know what i mean i mean quite yeah. literally right i mean that was part of the cultural project of the cold war was you know uh u.s chess players versus soviet chess players and so like you know, now Magnus Carlsen, whatever, that kind of thing, right? There's still some cultural, uh, you know, um, effect to it. But then, you know, you could be a celebrity um, by playing chess. And people were, right? Yeah. People know who Bobby Fischer is now. He um, talks about Bobby Fischer all the time in this book. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, right. So, so yeah, there, there's some, um, I think, you know, just to kind of tease out what you're saying here, there are additional, he, he is pretending as if, as if all of these things are kind of intrinsically motivated. He says, he talks yes. about intrinsic motivation um, a lot in, in, in this book. Right. And that is like, that's what he wants to argue is that like surgery. And when I say surgery, rock climbing and chess, like he has chapters dedicated to hmm. these three things, right? These are his case studies. 
Um, oh, okay. He is asserting that each of these is intrinsically motivated in a way that I think is just patently untrue. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, uh, just to give an, an idea of that too. So I'm assuming for the 1975 book that, that these are case studies that are based on interviews. So um, how the, uh, he gets into the method in both books a little bit actually. And it's mm -hmm. not clear to me like how much uh, additional research came after the 1975 book. Uh, but it does he he does seem to have um, done a combination of interviews and the the kind of journaling activity that mm -hmm. he describes in in the 1990 book. Which uh, so the the method here and there's nothing wrong with this method. Um, sort of specifically is there were people who had like pagers on them essentially uh, like the the subjects in the study and at certain sort of random times during the day they're uh, pagers would go off and they had to write down like how they were feeling and what made them feel that way and so on and so forth. Uh, the idea being that they're going to d generate an archive of how people describe various types of positive and negative experience that they encounter throughout the day. Um, but yeah, there's there seems to be a more specific focus on uh, certain subjects. Like the, the 1990 book is about everything in a way that the 1975 book is not because it is specifically looking at chess, rock climbing and surgery. Uh, and he also, yeah. this is, this is important also. He openly admits uh, near the end of the book to generalizing from what he calls, and this is his word, elite activities. Hmm. Right. He admits this and then says, it's not a problem. Because he is asserting that the things that he thinks are valuable, that people experience as valuable in these elite activities are just the same things that people experience in other activities. Hmm. Uh, so, so it's not... Um, because it is a universal function of the human to, in, to do this kind of thing, it doesn't really matter what we look at because it's everywhere. I mean, yeah, that's sort, of, that's sort of the, 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 the argument that he's trying to float. Yeah, I was I was confused just to talk about methodology again for a brief second. Yeah. The the nineteen ninety book is is really interesting because it's this kind of journaling, this pager based journaling that you uh, that that you talked about too. But mm -hmm. then it's very unclear, uh, you know, because by nineteen between nineteen seventy five and nineteen ninety, there appear to be a lot of people around the world who are doing work in flow. Right, right. You know, he's got that, a lot of collaborators. Kind of, a lot of collaborators and a lot of people who are just like doing things. So, for example, he really leans a lot on the evidence of, um, I don't remember the, I didn't write the name down, but it's uh, like an Italian uh, lab, right? Or mm -hmm. uh, an Italian group who is doing research on flow and happiness as well. And he cites them quite often throughout the book. And that seems to be a group of people who just kind of thought that flow is useful and are doing their own research. And so um, what's interesting to me is like the, the 1990 book is partially well, it is unclear when the evidence around flow is from something Csikszentmihalyi himself you know did himself some sort of experiment or or reading or interpretation he did himself and when it was a completely different group completely different lab completely different uh methodology that is related to flow and is able to kind of be ported into it so you know the kind of for me the proof on that level is is a little bit shaky well, and at the beginning, um, did you notice this? At the beginning of the book, he makes a point of saying that he is not going to cite anything. It, 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 yes, in the thing. But you can uh, you can go to the back of the book. I don't know if you did this. Did you look at the notes? I did. The notes are, um, they're wild. 
<laughs> so for the the first thing, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong about with this, but it is it is notable. Um, the first thing I noticed is uh, he cites himself so many times that it's two and a half pages long, single space. <laughs> Um, which is fine. He did the work, I guess, right? And like that's okay. But that that's a lot of that's a lot of of himself, right? Uh, you, you know, proving his own point. So um, you know that's interesting. The other thing too is that the notes in the back are so broad as to be uh, useless, mm-hmm. and and that's just to, to to you know say that directly. There's one section where he's talking about uh, like philosophy. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, there are actually a couple of these, but this is the the one that's worth looking at. So he kind of couches that theory of consciousness we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. He couches that within, um, you know, phenomenology, right? So we're going to bracket a lot of different stuff. We're going to look at just how people have experienced things kind of object qua subject, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, these these there's a linkage between these. Basically, the way the notes work is there's like a, a highlighted word of the note, and so... You're supposed to go back and read that paragraph or that page and be like, okay, this is the note for that section. Phenomenology. This is the note. The term phenomenological is not used here to denote adherence to the tenets or methods of any particular thinker or school. It only means that the approach to the problem of studying experience is heavily influenced by the insights of Husserl, Heidegger, Sartre, Merleau-Ponty, and some of the translators in the social sciences, e.g. Natanson, Gendlin, Fisher, Wan, and Schutz. Uh, clear short introductions to the phenomenology of Husserl are the books by Kohak and Kolakowski. Uh, to follow this volume, however, there's no need to keep in mind any phenomenological assumption. The argument must stand on its own merits and be understood in its own terms. So so the note is literally, here, here are names of people where it will take the rest of your life to understand what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Qu- quite literally. But, you know, you don't got to worry about it. Just trust me. Mm-hmm. And that's how every note in, in this book works. It It is the kind of thing of, you know, in lawyerly terms, you know, just bury them in evidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you know, you do a document dump and then it's just so many things for them to search through that it's impossible to do it in the time allowed. That's exactly how the notes work in this book. They well, are, I mean, that's and, kind of the MO for the book on a, <laughs> on a much larger scale too, right? Because the book does this, we've, we've already talked about like the sheer number of specific examples that get trotted out right um but uh the book also does this thing that is and i i told you that this reminds me of uh like early english pamphlet literature uh Mm. the way that it just trots out like uh brainy quotes right like as albert Mm -hmm. einstein said as as theophrastus of of erisos said like just constant invocation of of classical and learned authorities and like famous people um in a way that it just it's a um it's this very interesting sort of way of doing argument by authority right like he's he's like implicitly like latching all of these people separated by time and place into into this argument for flow right like well of course like of course flow exists because like there's both a Karl Marx quote that seems to support it and an Adam Smith quote that seems to support it. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, everyone agree. It, uh, ideologically people might have strong disagreements, but everyone agrees flow exists. Right. I think we're probably just to kind of flag this for people. We're into the editorializing part of the program. I think so. <laughs> yeah. I, um, and that's because and we are not, I, I, I you know, want to make this clear. We have probably talked about this book off mic more than we have any other book that mm-hmm. we've read 
in the two years we've been doing this show. Because we, we legitimately had no idea how we were supposed to cover it. And that's not because we are uniquely uncharitable to the thing or we, we uniquely don't like it, although reading it made me not like it. That, that is true. Um, but we didn't have any kind of preconceived bias against it other than me having some kind of skepticism about it. It's just that, you know, you'll notice in the timestamp, we only spent about 20 minutes summarizing the core claim of the book because that's all it takes to do it. it it's a, you know, if you want to hear someone say it here and, and turn it off, it's a one-size-fits-all option. It is culturally universal. It applies to literally every context you could ever imagine. And uh, if, if you need flow to exist and you need the kind of... Um, um, terminology of flow to get through your life that's perfectly fine you don't need to listen to any of the rest of the program mm -hmm. um, because from here on out we're going to be talking about the mechanisms and the kind of lego building blocks that gets to the point where you can say that flow exists and that's where my kind of big critique of the thing uh you know comes in all arguments and i've said this on multiple you know multiple episodes of the show all arguments are, you know, they're a building, you know, you're building something, you know, it's a stage, right? So uh, if you need it, an argument's kind of like a platform, it's something you stand on to make, uh, you know, to pontificate about other things, right? So uh, you're making statements about the world, you're making statements about certain truths that, that have to be true in order for your argument to do work, okay? Flow, the, the boards, the bricks, the nails, all the things you use to build that stage, to build that platform, I think I have a problem intellectually, conceptually, proof-wise with every single one of them. Mm -hmm. Because the assumptions being made in order to legitimate the project of flow, I, I think they're mostly false. Or, or at least they, they, I, I just don't agree with them, right? Um, mm -hmm. which I guess is the same as saying they're false. <laughs> but, but I guess there's room for you to agree with them, but, but I don't. Um, and so the next, you know, bit of the show is going to be Michael and I kind of talking about those basic assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you have anything to, to add to, to that piece? Uh, no, I mean, I'm basically in agreement, right? I would say my, my orientation toward this was probably like also skeptical, but not skeptical in the way that I think you were skeptical because I, I experience things when, when, when people talk about flow, right? When I first heard about flow, um, as a concept, I could think of the things in my life that that would allegedly describe, right? There are moments in my life where I can be like, oh, that must have been a flow experience. Having mm -hmm. read this book, I'm not sure they were. Or if they were, like, I'm not sure a flow experience is anything unique, right? Like, this this made me more skeptical, right? It made the the concept, like, hang together less for me. Uh, precisely because it just, well, we'll get into it, right? But like that, that is kind of my, my uh, approach to, to flow, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I guess I should say it too, I haven't said this yet, but, but uh, what you're alluding to there, right, is partially my skepticism of flow comes from the fact that I don't experience it. Whatever gets called flow, right, this kind of stable state of pure enjoyment where you forget about the world, time passes, all that kind of stuff. I just don't experience it um, that I never when playing a game, when doing anything, I never forget about like my body and what's happening. And if I'm comfortable or uncomfortable, my brain doesn't turn off. Like I'm always thinking about the thing and kind of an external position to it. 
And um, Csikszentmihalyi, you know, very uh, uh, graciously uh, basically says, uh, well, maybe I'm broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and by broken, you know, uh, he means uh, I might be a schizophrenic or I might have ADD. Which are the, the two types of people who don't get to experience the universal joy of flow. Yeah. And when I say uh, broken there, I'm not saying that people who are schizophrenic who have ADD are, are somehow uh, less than. But Csikszentmihalyi does. I mean, Csikszentmihalyi basically says, here's the daisy chain of argument. The best way to get to the good life is being able to understand how to apply flow in your day-to-day life in any situation. That's going to make you uh, a more fulfilled and happier human being. There are certain people who just cannot do that for external reasons. Some of those reasons are uh, very unclear, but because he is uh, so focused on universalism and a universal human condition, he appeals to psychology and he appeals to biology a lot. Um, So he has to find inborn reasons for people not to be able to experience flow. Um, there's some other reasons for that too that are that are uh, get more complicated later uh, that don't quite fit his own model. But so so he explicitly says, you know, as you're pointing out, Michael, he explicitly says ADD and schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the kind of daisy chain argument is that you just won't be fulfilled if you fulfill any of those categories. You you won't be able to have the best life that a human being can. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the same way that we talked about that with kind of Huizinga, it's it's it is predicated on a logic of dehumanization. Right. That there are people who can access the fullness of humanity, and there are people who cannot, and there's nothing that can be done about that. And ethically, conceptually, morally, I find myself on the exact opposite side of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if that is the if that is the mode through which that we have to construct the human, then then that is. Uh, then the human is a uh, a thing that has to be abandoned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just insufficient. <laughs> the human as... is a thing that has to be abandoned. Game study study buddies. <laughs> I mean, but right. I mean, you know, and I'm not saying anything. You know, Foucault says that. Uh, uh-huh. uh, a lot of people uh, have have said that. I've um, said that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael Lutz, uh, uh, 2020. Uh, no, probably like 2017, right? But that, that is all to say, right? That that. Um, he specifically couches that too within a response to moral relativism, mm-hmm. um, which, which is you know may, seems like a weird turn here, but but actually isn't that weird of a turn. Do you do you remember this part? Of the yes. Book? So the the thing the other thing to keep in mind about this book uh, for for the listener at home is that it is the most egregiously 1990 book I can think of. Yeah. In terms of like what its political preoccupations are. Um, so it's coming around in, at this point, um, when we, we are getting, it's, it's, it's what they call the culture wars in the academy. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the right wing is, uh, getting, so I, I come out of, you know, English studies and literature. So like, they're talking about like, oh, instead of, uh, reading Shakespeare, they have people reading, um, I don't know, the, the poetry of, of Phyllis Wheatley, right. Um, mm-hmm. or, uh, Amelia Lanier or someone like that, right? Or when they put on their Shakespeare productions, uh, they're making it like political by saying maybe Shakespeare was an anti-capitalist or something bizarre like that, or just gender flipping the yes. the play, right? Like yes. even basic kind of things that we think of are like just in the toolbox, you know, in 2020 that are available to people. That was seen as a political attack, yes, on on what quote unquote Western culture. 
right? So we have um, this this rising tide of right wing voices who are diagnosing what they see as the problem with with the academy at the moment, which is like postmodernism. And this is the precise way that like Jordan Peterson today talks about postmodernism. In fact, you can draw a straight line from this book to Jordan Peterson. Yeah, um, I, I, you know, and and again, that's not I. We are not misrepresenting anything in here. There is, uh, there is a part of the, you know, we're talking about the bricks and tools and uh, uh, boards that are used to kind of build the platform of this argument. It's all based on biological psychology, meaning that there are things inborn in the human, whether those are genetic or. Uh, I mean, they got to be genetic, I guess, if they're inborn. Um, there, there are things in the biology of, of the wiring of the human being that produce certain structures on top of that. And some mm-hmm. are good and some are bad. And that's the same argument that people like Peterson make. I mean, you know, it, Peterson is a psychologist, right? Right. Yeah. Um, Evo psych guy, I guess, but same, same deal. Right. So uh, the to bring this back to sort of this point of cultural relativism then, right? Like if, if cultural relativism, the idea that uh, we cannot defend like quote unquote Western culture um, against other t- other various cultural forms, right? Other possibilities for for social life, what have you? Um, like that is that is the threat of cultural relativism uh, to to uh, people of this per- political persuasion. Um, and Csikszentmihalyi uh, goes full bore saying. Uh, we need to dispense with cultural relativism and we need to go back to making judgments and distinctions between different types of cultures, right? Being able to say that one culture is better than another. And the reason we can do this, he he sort of like sneakily alleges, um, is that we have gotten, like, he acknowledges that cultural relativism, relativism comes out of realizing, like, you know, like Victorian beginnings of sociology and ethnography, uh, where... Uh, people would just like go and observe like the the like you know the primitives quote unquote and and sort of view them from afar uh all of the kind of cultural chauvinism that has been brought to light now that we've seen that now that we've seen how that works we're not going to do it anymore we we know better than to assume that our way of life is the best one so now we can get back to like judging cultures uh, by how conducive they are to like uh, flow, and it just turns out that <laughs> you know it's 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 our culture that happens to do flow the best. Yes, um, yeah. So so I, I so I think two things. I, I think that's a really great great way of putting that kind of like you know constellation of arguments because this it, the way that this argument um, plays out about kind of the the core of flow is spread throughout the book in weird different places. So the the first thing I want to say about it, right, is that I think some people might be listening right now and thinking like, well, the thing that is described in flow is certain is something that I experience, right? Which is like, you know, you were saying, Michael, that there have been times historically when you have felt the thing that is described in flow, meaning that there's a balance between uh, frustration and ease, Mm-hmm. And you're, you're being challenged just enough, right, to uh, be able to uh, kind of lose yourself, be immersed, you mm-hmm. know, get pulled into the experience so that you, uh, I don't know, you, you play Crusader Kings 2 all night long, right? Mm-hmm. I've, I've done that. You know, yeah. I, I'm not absorbed in the thing, but certainly I've had, you know, what strategy gamers call uh, the one more turn. Uh, experience right where it's yes. like oh it's it's one thirty in the morning i need to go to bed but i just want to play one more turn and see what happens 
Um, you know, but you might be a little bit more in-depth, you know, less uh, reflective about it, right? Um, so people might be listening and thinking, oh, I experienced that. Well, how, do, how does that, if I experience that and that's what I call flow, how does that interact with all the other things that we're saying here, right? And so what I think is important to, to point out here is that you can experience a thing and, but the act of naming it and the act of creating an argument about what explains that thing is inherently a political one. Mm -hmm. We can have experiences in culture that are shared, but the way that we explain them and the way that we uh, uh, say that they are good or bad, right, uh, is making a political choice. So, for example, we could say that watching Shakespeare, you and I sit down. I don't really like Shakespeare. You know, I'm not not the world's biggest fan. You like Shakespeare quite a bit. We could both sit in opposite, uh, you know, sides of, of the Globe Theater. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and we could watch a Midsummer Night's Dream and we could laugh and have a good time, right? I don't really like Shakespeare all that much, um, and you like it a lot, but in the moment of the performance, you know, we're both having a good time. I'm surprised, you know, I, I came in with a bias and, and I enjoyed it anyway, right? We had the same experience of enjoyment and happiness. So there's two different, you know, logics here, right? I could say, oh, the reason that Michael and I both enjoy Shakespeare is that Shakespeare espouses all the values of the West in everything that is good in Anglophone culture. And so, therefore, despite my any kind of prejudice I might have against Shakespeare, there is, at the core of Shakespeare, a logic of, uh, of English accomplishment mm -hmm. that I can't help but, but enjoy, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, then, but you might also ex explain it and say, um, well, actually... Um, or, or here's another way of explaining why we both enjoyed a Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, it's because that the language rhymes in an interesting way, and humans inherently like rhyming language. Mm -hmm. And that's like fun for humans. It's universal. Humans love rhymes, right? Mm -hmm. um, those are two different ways of universalizing that experience. They're two different ways of explaining the experience of happiness that individual humans have. But the political um, uh, 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 aftermath, right, or the political logic beneath those two things is radically different, right? Mm -hmm. so, so when we're critical of a flow here, it's not that we're critical of the idea that someone could be immersed or someone could have a kind of one-to-one -one interesting engagement with a computer system or a tabletop game or another player or anything like that. What we're being critical of is... The, the mode of justification and explanation. Do you think that's a fair thing? I just want to like kind of get that in there because I think uh, up to this point, it, it could be unclear, you know, if if we hate the idea that flow exists or, or if we're very <laughs> unhappy with, with the, you know, the explanation mechanism. It's the explanation mechanism that I'm very unhappy with. Yes, no, I, I would agree, right? It is the explanation mechanism. And it's interesting that you bring about... Um, so the, this book, Flow 1990... I think comes out of the way that it it the way that this shakes out of the 1975 book. I've sort of given you the the beginning of his research there, which is this question: Why do people do things that are not like traditionally rewarding, right? And so mm -hmm. from that, he develops this entire sort of theory of autotelic activities uh, and so on and so forth. Um, the sort of shift that uh, he positions himself as making. And this is where it's going to get us into game studies, I think. He talks about both uh, Calois and Huizinga as people who preceded him 
who uh, looked at the the structure and kind of mechanism of autotelic activities, which is to say sort of like intrinsically rewarding activities, activities that are done kind of for their own sake. Um, he looks at both of them and he says what they did not do, what they did not get that I do get, that flow does get, is um, this emphasis on the subjective experience. <laughs> so Csikszentmihalyi's entire claim in, in this context right in in sort of like what is the intervention that he is making um is that these previous theories were incomplete because they did not have the subjective ex they did not centralize or prioritize the subjective experience of the person who was like undertaking the activity right that that is in some way um meaningful and in fact like changes the terms of the argument in a way that you know, kind of surpasses Kalwa and Huizinga. But really what happens um, is that this focus on the individual itself becomes a, a political plank, right? Yeah, because absolutely. it is, there is never a sense that the self-inflow has a politics. It is totally individualized and um, is its only priority is to keep itself in flow, is to harmonize. It has no kind of vision for the world or for collective life or anything like that. It is uh, a totally like uh, self-reflexive loop of, of maintaining a, a, a certain type of comfort. Right. So I think that that kind of feeds back into something we were talking about, cultural relativism. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I want to say that in order to talk about another thing that has to do with individuality. So the, what, you know, you were saying, Michael, that he couches cultural relativism in, or has kind of a response to it, right? Which is actually, we can talk about the way that general, that cultures, um, constrain or provide for, uh, flow and happiness. And in doing so, we can make like comparative claims between them. Right. So he, he, so he says, each social system, this is on page 78 of my, my edition, each social system can then be evaluated in terms of how much psychic entropy it causes, measuring that disorder not with reference to the ideal order of one or another belief system, but with reference to the goals of the members of that society. A starting point would be to say that one society is, quote, better than another if a greater number of its people have access to experiences that are in line with their goals. A second essential criterion would specify that these experiences should lead to the growth of the self on an individual level by allowing as many people as possible to develop increasingly complex skills. So that that jump to that second point is exactly what you're pointing to, right? Because mm -hmm. I think we can point to the vast majority of cultures throughout human history <laughs> in which self-actualization toward happiness is absolutely possible um, but it's that second that that second order thing, right? Where it's that has to be then therefore individualized with uh, individual people being getting access to more complexity, as opposed to say uh, fulfilling, as opposed to you know following your parents and being farmers, mm -hmm. right? You, right? You need to be able to go do something else that's not farming, or following your parents in being um, you know uh, doing healing or whatever. Um, in, 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 uh, you know, like in Jablo, being a paladin. <laughs> right. Um, well, and but, the other thing, kind of thing, I noted this uh, as well in my notes, this this precise uh, section, because also right here, you can see how this becomes like, this becomes one of the justifications for like the war in Iraq, right? And like the war in Afghanistan, like the wars mm -hmm. in the Middle East is they like, 
they, these, these Muslim countries, just have a culture that is not conducive to the happiness of its citizens. And so we need to go in there and do some regime change. Yeah, he actually expressly says that in the last chapter, not about the war in Iraq, because, uh, well, war in Iraq had not happened yet. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but he explicitly is talking about his, um, uh, uh, so this is on page 215. Quote, in the past few years, I've come to be quite well acquainted with several Muslim professionals, uh-huh. electronics engineers, pilots, businessmen, and teachers, mostly from Saudi Arabia and from the other Gulf states. In talking to them, I was struck with how relaxed most of them seem to be under, under strong pressure. There's nothing to it, those I asked about it told me in different words, but with the same message. We don't get upset because we believe that our life is in God's hands, and whatever he decides will be fine with us. Such implicit faith used to be widespread in our culture as well, but it is not easy to find now. Many of us have, uh, have to discover a goal that will give meaning to life on our own without the help of a traditional faith. And so this is kind of like a, a weird, it's, it's a very Karl Rove kind of moment, right? Where he's saying that uh, there's benefits to that religion, but sadly, most of us don't have it, that we don't get access to it. So we have to self-determine on our own. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but his argument there, right? This is a clash, you know, the argument that you're alluding to is, uh, you know, the clash of civilizations argument, mm-hmm. um, which is, um, was evoked a huge amount uh, after 9-11, but the idea that there's just two separate kind of cultural types and one is allows for better individuation, better freedoms, better access to democracy and cultures in Iraq and Afghanistan, which, you know, were very specifically evoked at that time and continue to be that they just don't have access to it. Right. So there is. Uh, racism baked into the ideology. There's cultural chauvinism baked into the ideology. But but Cameron, and- Cameron, you can't say that he's a cultural chauvinist because on page 229 of my edition, he says, the inner harmony of technologically less advanced people is the positive side of their limited choices and of their stable repertory of skills, just as the confusion in our soul is the necessary consequence of unlimited opportunities and constant perfectibility. Right. So you have to, in order to, you know, we were talking about the, the bricks in the stage, right? In order to to buy into the way that the flow argument is proven to be true in this book, you have to believe that there is a hierarchy of civilizations. You know, very, you know, same thing that we were talking about in Huizinga, right? Almost mm-hmm. the exact same. And mm-hmm. Kawa, too. You have to believe that inherently, not that there are differences among culture, because we know that there are differences among culture, but that those differences, and particularly the amount of freedom that they allow for individuals to have, that that is the sole metric, with freedom defined in a very particular way here, but that is the sole metric both of goodness and of progress. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just have to, you have to believe that some people are, have access to a better form of humanity than other people. And that to me doesn't seem to be a good way to live your life. It doesn't seem to be a good way to think about other human beings in the world. And it seems to me to be kind of the core of, of a lot of issues, <laughs> you know, and I'm laughing because it's just, it's, it's astounding to me that it, it is astounding to me that this argument has been laundered into game studies mm-hmm. um, that, that by kind of latching on to the, Flow the mechanical ideas of flow, right? What 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 show up in chapter four, right? These kind of conditions to create a flow state. That those arguments are based on these other 
arguments mm-hmm. that, that I think are just bankrupt. I think they're intellectually bankrupt ideas. Um, and, and this is just as you were saying, Michael, I think you put it so well, this is taking the, the, it's taking the conservative side in the culture war that, that fundamentally is predicated on West is best. Um, mm-hmm. and it's a, a politics that's abhorrent to me. I, I mean, I just don't think that, that I think it's bad. Um, and I mean, so, so the other thing that, the, the thing that I was looking for, uh, before, right. So he says that, you know, kind of two things based on flow here or, or, uh, access to flow, right. Uh, one of which is what we talked about already, which is that some people are genetically or psychologically unable to do so. Mm-hmm. And, and we get that kind of gets a paragraph. The second uh, paragraph uh, or about who doesn't get access to it, this is on page 84, is also really enlightening to me. He says, quote, a less drastic obstacle to experiencing flow is excessive self-consciousness. A, personly, a person who is constantly worried about how others will perceive her, who is afraid of creating the wrong impression or of doing something inappropriate, is also condemned to permanent exclusion from enjoyment. So are people who are excessively self-centered. A self-centered individual is usually not self-conscious, but instead evaluates every bit of information only in terms of how it relates to her desires. Interesting that this gets gendered in both places here as, mm-hmm. as female. Uh, for such a person... He's being progressive, Cameron. You, you, you know, you would think it would flip in the middle <laughs> if you really wanted to like be really progressive here. But, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I guess it's, it's, uh, uh, it's weird of me to expect the, the progressiveness of the D&D 3.5 edition rules. But uh, what do I know? Uh, a self-centered, uh, but anyway, so, so uh, a flower is not worth a second look unless it can be used. A man or woman who cannot advance one's interest do not, does not deserve further attention. Uh, so this is kind of critiquing the self-centered person. And what I think is interesting here is, you know, this, this uh, beyond talking about cultures in a broad sense, this book has no interest in talking about gender or race or disability or any of the other kind of identity, formative, and, and materially important parts of a human being's life, right? I mean, uh, but, I just want to point out that, like, when race shows up here, it is never named. People are mm-hmm. only mentioned as being from, and I quote, the ghetto. There, there's that. Yeah, there also, in, in the inter- introduction, we get some stuff about African and Asian cultures, mm. like, you know, in, in big. So, yeah, exactly. Race shows up in, in uh, uh, couched terms, mostly. But, but what's interesting here, right, is that if you've done any reading in race or gender studies, and, in, and I mean that in a very broad sense, you read any post-colonial literature, you read any, uh, you know, black studies— um, you read Fanon, right? <laughs> just Franz Fanon, right? The the act of being in the world and being raced in the world is one of being self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Right? I think this is a shared claim. I don't think I'm saying anything that is not kind of a basic claim in these fields that uh, being aware of one's racedness, right, is, is the position of being non-white, uh, of knowing that you are not... That in the broad system of culture, that you are defined as other in many circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what is implicitly being said here, and I don't think he knows it because I don't think he cares anything you know, about this literature base. What's implicitly being said here is that there are huge, huge, huge numbers of people, you know, especially so if we just take the United States, for example, right? 20% of the United States cannot experience flow in most of their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can't do that because of the very quality of being self-conscious as constitutive of their subjectivity. They have to know who they are and how they exist in the world at all times. 
Um, you know, just in the past couple of days, we've had a, a, a really significant uh, event of a woman saying she's calling the police uh, and telling them mm-hmm. that an African-American man uh, with that kind of intonation is threatening her life. And that's the exact thing that's being pointed at here, right? Mm-hmm. Having to be self-conscious about your experience and your subjectivity and knowing that that polices you in different ways and that opens you up to harm and vulnerability in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, f- for me, right, just reading the one page of of this, this page 84, uh, Flo obviously built up in ableism. I don't think that's there's any surprise there or it's built up in a normal normative model of psychology, but it's mm-hmm. also built up into whiteness. Um, yes. And and a very particular masculine whiteness. Gender, I think, is much more uh, complicated here. I think it, it's more difficult for me to get my, my head around. Uh, but I, I certainly don't think that this is a racially equitable theory. Um, I think that it has a lot of kind of uh, racial categorization that is implicit in the method. We've already talked about the kind of the c- cultural part of it. But specifically, the way that race operates is... Um, put some big holes, I think, in, in the way that, that we might be able to use flow or think with flow. Mm-hmm. You know, repeatedly in this book, he talks about complexity as like a beneficial value for itself. And I know that you sent me a couple pieces about that, or not pieces, but you know, you've mentioned that to me a couple times mm-hmm. um, in the, the lead up to talking about the book. So, so Michael, uh, what, what kind of gets your, your brain going about that? All right. So uh, one of the, one of the other claims about from this book and here here's where here's something that i want to make very very clear we have already said that flow is this one thing that we would describe it in these terms flow will actually change what it does and what it means depending on the context and what is most useful for for the writer at that point in time um so the other thing that flow does rather than just being a state that you can slip into it actually makes you a more complex self this is this mm-hmm. is explicitly a claim that is made, and also that um, it sort of uh, concomitant with this idea that you are not going to experience a good life unless you have a life that is allowing you to experience flow, um, basically as much as possible. Um, if you are not experiencing flow, then you are not becoming a complex self. Well, what does this mean? On the one hand, it means that you are like challenging yourself. Because you are not conforming with, like, society's demands, right? You are going to go out and go rock climbing, even if that... You're going to become a surgeon, even if that's not traditionally rewarding. Um, but you are also not going to be totally self-involved. That that uh, um, tension between, like, conformity and selfishness that he sets up, that you were just talking about, Cameron, comes into play here. Um, that a complex self... Uh, is in the flow state between selfishness and conformity. And so there's this uh, sort of theorized Hegelian uh, vision of the self that is uh, put forth in the second chapter. Um, This is on page 41 in my edition. Um, Mm -hmm. Selves have to grow themselves, essentially. uh, And they do this by a kind of dialectic process of differentiation and integration. So differentiation is when you're like, no, I'm not going to conform to like whatever society is telling me I need to want. I'm going to become a surgeon or I'm going to become a rock climber Um, because this is the this is the other sort of uh, underlying argument here that uh, Chiksin Mihai makes uh, that 
there are certain needs that everyone has and society like lures us into thinking we know what we want, right? We need to uh, choose apart from the, the normal things that are offered up. That's just like, you know, food and, and material comfort. We need something better than that, right? Something that's going to challenge us, stimulate us mentally and uh, make us grow as people in, in that way. Um, so you you split off from the kind of base material comforts that society offers you. You choose to become a surgeon or whatever. Uh, but then you have to integrate, right? After that differentiation, you then have to integrate yourself back into uh, a kind of like stable sense of, of your role in society and what you're doing and so on and so forth. Um, and here's where this gets really weird. Both differentiation and integration happen in flow like this is straight up like he starts out saying yeah. like the the flow process is extremely important because it allows you to differentiate right it allows you to like um focus on something to the exclusion of everything else right you are differentiating yourself from the world around you from society whatever um but then it allows you to integrate because when you are when you're doing flow because you are now so aware of your own thought process and like what like what your body is doing, then suddenly you become a newly integrated self. And this makes you more complex. Now, the the other thing to point out here, right, is that essentially by, like, what he means by complex is that you are gaining experience, which is true of everyone, right? As you are a being that exists in time, you are constantly, like, collecting and accreting around yourself, like, more and more information, more and more sense data. So in that sense, right, you just become complex by existing in the world and having experiences. Um, but uh, the argument here is that to really be complex, to be, like, usefully complex, you have to be able to, uh, like, take all of this experience and then point it towards some end and that it, it's, it becomes um, almost evolutionary in the way that complexity is seen, right? That you are, you are kind of ascending a ladder of being uh, by becoming more complex. Yeah. And, and the, I, I, I think, you know, this kind of question of like, is that just how the world is? You know what I mean? Like, is this just like how uh, everything is? It, the good example for that is on like 143, 144, where he says uh, the example given to the argument you're just making is he says that basically a surgeon is learning something new every day and a laborer is not. And uh, I come from a family of laborers. That is factually incorrect. Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, so, you know, even if we grant, you know, that like specialized knowledges are happening, which is absolutely true, there are absolutely specialized knowledges that are happening in any given activity that you pursue every given day. Uh, go out and work in the garden for eight hours and come back and tell me you didn't learn anything new. Um, and I'll call you a liar. No, <laughs> but, uh, but right, like obviously not learning the same things that the surgeon would be learning, right? And not having the same sort of uh, feedback loop. He's, he's describing a feedback loop, right? Mm -hmm. um, not having the same kind of one, but you are having one. In fact, this is like, you know, going back to Gibson and affordances, right? And, and really kind of going back to, um, I mean, I guess there's a lot of stuff in the 1920s, 1930s, um, that kind of could get, you know, Von Uckel and, and stuff like that that could mm -hmm. get you here, right? Um, but uh, but that's all to say, right, that you're exactly correct. Like, it is deeply confusing to me um, how this uh, describes something unique. And I think what is fascinating about the difference between 
how flow is positioned in this book versus how flow shows up most often in game studies is that uh, the big citation for flow in game studies might be Csikszentmihalyi, but it is uh, you know just kind of looking looking at Google Scholar and things like that. In the way that I encountered it, certainly for the, in the first times, is Genovachin's master's thesis on flow, mm-hmm. um, which then you know Genovachin creates flow and then creates flower, flower, ha ha ha. And these are games that are about kind of deep meditative experience. That's you know kind of kind of the thing. You can read Genovachin's master's thesis. It really is just taking taking this chapter four and uh, making it explicitly about games. I don't think it is a particularly deep document in the sense of. It, it is not a proof or anything like that. It's literally just like a statement. Here's what flow is. Here's how it could be uh, applied to dynamic difficulty adjustment in games. And here are some examples of that. It's not long. You can read it. Just give it to Google. Um, but what's interesting is it is taking the graph, right? The kind of flow channel graph that's on page 74 of my book um, and turning it into a game thing um, mm-hmm. where like the X, uh, the, the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a graph. From the side, the X is boredom, um, or you know, it's a uh, high skill, high to low skill. You know what? Just look up, look up the graph. <laughs> uh, it's gonna be so much easier than me explaining it. But basically, uh, if you stray from the middle, from a perfect balance between um, skill level and challenge, right? This kind of like middle state of, of skill and challenge, you either uh, get unhappy because you're not performing well. You know, you're you're behind the ball, as it were, or you're bored because your skill level's too high. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, uh, all the game studies people, right, chart this middle path, and they're like, "That's flow. That's the good place where your ch- your skill is met with the exact right challenge to do the thing that you're talking about, Michael, right? Which is like gain more experience and and become you know more knowledgeable in the world or whatever, right? But what's weird about the way that that gets positioned in all these other documents is that for them, it's just like you need to be plotted on a point. But in Csikszentmihalyi's version of it on page 74, it is in fact a a feedback loop that takes you into anxiety and into boredom. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you're going to be anxious about your skills and you're going to be bored kind of consistently, but but you're shooting to get into the middle. Um, And so there's a way in which that like feedback loop of experience is taken into account here that for whatever reason, like doesn't make the jump necessarily into into game studies although certainly the um the like psychological research that i've looked at over the past few days where people are talking about flow and they're talking about immersion they they you know they take these things into account mm-hmm. um well and i think part of that is like Mihai himself in this book is extremely dedicated to not letting you think that flow might be unpleasant or bad right like yeah. there is he he the 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 boredom and anxiety stuff like that's that's where his original research starts right mm-hmm. and then he jettisons that in this book on flow um and one of the things that like occurred to me as as i was sort of reading it and i've talked we, we mentioned this before right flow states um there are there are things that i have experienced that i might like say were flow states the the language that gets used to describe them is is you know, sort of evocative of these times. Um, and they're not pleasant at all, right? Like, I I can understand the idea of, like, a flow state when I am playing a game that I hate. Mm-hmm. Right? But the, the idea when this jumps over to game studies is that, like, this is going to make games really good because we'll always have this, like, perfect structure for uh, pulling a person uh, uh, through this experience. Um, but, like... 
I can sit down and play a game that I hate if I have to play it for some reason, right? If I have to write something on it or if, um, you know, we're going to do a video on it or something. Like, I I can do, like, a flow where I'm just, like, playing the game, right? I have become part of the game's mechanism, but it's not pleasant. It's not good. I don't think it makes me a more complex individual in a positive sense. And that's an entire kind of field or, like, possibility uh, uh, projecting out from this uh, experience that uh, Csikszentmihalyi is just not going to talk about. Yeah, it seems like the there's no work done here to talk about, like, the experience of flow must then for make you happy. I think the only response to that, like, that you could come to just by reading the book, right? I think we could think a million ways around it, but... Reading the book, the only response to your what you just said would be, you're happy, but you just don't know it. Mm-hmm. And if you recognize that feeling as happiness, you would be happy all the time. Right. Which is exactly the argument they make about like assembly line labor, right? Uh-huh. It's, it's absolute drudgery to put together the same thing 700 times a day. But in fact, if you realize that the, the kind of state that you go into can be enjoyable, and if you break that down into little pieces and uh, really kind of set goals for yourself in small ways, then you're going to make it into basically a little game, and that little game is going to be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a section of the book where he talks about people who have survived disasters or, like, extreme conditions, and he says that they're, they're, um, the way that they have done that, right? So say you're buried in an avalanche, right? The, the way that those people have accomplished that is that they look at uh, the smallest thing that they can do, and then they do it, and they set another goal, and they do it, and they set another goal, and they do it, and they set another goal, and they do it, and then they kind of get into this rhythm of, you know, digging out with their fingers or whatever, you know, making up a survival scenario here. But Mm -hmm. those small goals lead up to the accomplishment of a big thing. They're in a flow state, they're fundamentally happy, and then that produces a good outcome, right? It produces kind of an intentional life because you were doing this kind of... uh, experience patterning operation uh that's literally the definition of survivor's bias what about all the people who did that and just died Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know what i mean there are plenty of people i'm sure who were like i need to get out of this uh you know i'm I'm buried beneath a house uh that collapsed on top of me during a tornado i need to to wiggle my left toe and they just didn't they didn't survive because that did not produce the results that they wanted due to material contingencies right so like even the way that the way that these things get operationalized and explained as like how to live one's life, I, I think even in the examples they break down, they don't really make that much sense. Right. Well, and then finally, like in, in one of the last chapters, chapter nine, um, he straight up says subjective experience is not just one of the dimensions of life. It is life itself. Material mm-hmm. conditions are secondary. They only affect us indirectly by way of experience. So it does not matter from this perspective where and how you live. As long as you are achieving flow, your life is is like self-justifying and valid. And this like extends to explicitly, right? He says, even people in concentration camps can experience joy. So yeah, I don't I, I don't know. And and you know, like we said earlier, literally it's on 231 where he says that Eichmann uh almost certainly experienced flow as he scheduled the trains going in and out of concentration camps. Yeah. Does not, does not dwell on that too long, right? Admits it. And there's a bit, I think, um, in this book as well, where he says, you know, like the Nazis were great at channeling the flow of, of Germans. 
Yeah, he says, uh, yeah, basically, they're the, I mean, it's literally the economic anxiety argument for Nazism, which is like, uh, you know, uh, Nazism, people in economic turmoil, it's somewhere in my notes here, but some people in economic turmoil in the 1930s in Germany were just looking for a way to become happy and to get into a flow state, and Nazism provided it. Um, so it's very, very, I mean, quite literally reactionary mm-hmm. um, in, in the way that it thinks. So, you know, from politics to examples to to ways it frames humans and humanity, there's just not a lot here in flow in the, the kind of brick and mortar plank sense of how this argument gets built. There's not anything here that I can align with uh, that makes me think this is a good way of evaluating the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it is over overwhelmingly bad. Yeah, the the Eichmann stuff is on two thirty one. Just to to read it here, it says um, the accepted life theme. Okay, we I want to talk about life themes after this really quickly. But the accepted life theme works well as long as the social system is sound. If it does not, it can trap the person into perverted goals. Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi who calmly shipped tens of thousands to the gas chambers, was a man for whom the rules of bureaucracy were sacred. He probably experienced flow as he shuffled the intricate schedules of trains, making certain that the scarce rolling stock was available where needed and that the bodies were transported at the least expense. He never seemed to question whether what he asked to do was right or wrong. As long as he followed orders, his consciousness was in harmony. For him, the meaning of life was to be part of a strong, organized institution. Nothing else mattered. In peaceful, well-ordered times, a man like Adolf Eichmann might have been an esteemed pillar of the community, but the vulnerability of his life theme becomes apparent when unscrupulous and demented people seize control of society. Then such an upright citizen turns into an accessory to crimes without having to change his goals and without even realizing the inhumanity of his actions. So, so one, just to note it, he was a, an upstanding member of his society. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that, that's how he rose in the ranks. His society, you know, set that. So it's right. not like, Hitler came to power and like everyone just had to fall in line, right? There was a whole social construct um, that that generated the conditions under which he could do that. Um, but this kind of like, you know, I, I think th- this is a, a good thing to bring up here. The last chapter, I keep saying the last cha- chapter complicates these things or, or moves a little bit. The last chapter is dedicated to life things or li- life things, life, life themes um uh and uh those are um adapted out of sart i think right yeah i believe so uh, um and the the idea just is is basically a life path right so so you have to have your own set of morals again going back to this kind of like deep deep individualism right this kind of lockean individualism you have to have in your mind the good and the good life and as long as you have that and you maintain a, a certain set of personal individualized morals, that's the difference between you and Adolf Eichmann. I mean, that's literally why that example shows up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have good morals and and I cannot be bound by culture or religion or anything like that. I can determine what the good is for me and you can do it for you. But people like Adolf Eichmann who put too much over to the, the group or the community or things like that, those people uh, are are due to the universal nature of flow, just going to get sucked up into that violent machine in a way that I, the individual will never be sucked up into that violent machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. This, the, you know, I I've spoken on this podcast many, many times about subjectivity and the way that it's formed, but this is just, is not how subjectivity or ideology or like the creation of the subject. It's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get to bootstrap your way into becoming a heroic individual and like deciding where your life goes. Right. Right. Um, you know, well, and 
jumping earlier in the book, and this is like one of his theories of, or like part of his sort of theory of consciousness, right? Is he says, and I think this is illustrative of a lot of assumptions that get made here. Uh, this is page 26 in my edition. The events that constitute consciousness, the things we see, feel, think, and desire are information that we can manipulate and use. Thus, mm -hmm. we might think of consciousness as intentionally ordered information. The like the, the the question that you should be asking yourself when someone makes a claim like that to you, that consciousness is intentionally ordered information, is whose intent is ordering yeah. that information? Yeah. <laughs> um, because what Csikszentmihalyi is going to tell you is that we order that information, right? It is like this, it's this idea of an autonomous self, right? That your consciousness is um, abstracted or independent of things and can organize the information that is coming into your into your uh, brain in in intentional ways um when in fact right like so much of our consciousness is not intentional at all like i am not intending to see various colors it's just a thing that happens <laughs> right yeah or or make perceptions or have biases or whatever right 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 um like what what you know, try to use Csikszentmihalyi to determine what unconscious bias is. Um, and please get back to me. <laughs> you know, like, um, or like, uh, you know, microaggressions. Uh, mm -hmm. there, there literally is not, you know, if you are, uh, if you are at work and you perform a microaggression against someone, um, right? And, I, and I'm assuming, you know, to, to be as charitable as humanly possible, that this is not an intentional one. Um, that doesn't exist for Csikszentmihalyi. Right. Mm -hmm. You made a choice and that choice was to, to do those things. Right. Well, um, and the other person has chosen to be a victim, which is a thing that gets brought up in one of his anecdotes. Right. If if you are offended, you should just reorganize the information in your consciousness in such a way that you are no longer offended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, you know, I think I made myself pretty Cameron, plain that. What the heck yep. does this have to do with game studies? So I, I don't know what this has to do with game studies other than um, the chapter four, which kind of explains the mechanism through which someone gets involved into a system of like a steady state of progression and enjoyment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and I had this conversation, you know, we we're just looking to see like, where did this come from? Like, where did people start pulling this into games and kind of looking through um, some bibliographies? It looks like in the late 1990s, people began using flow to describe or to, to kind of talk about two different things. The beginning of the serious games movement, you know, mm -hmm. so uh, people in psychology in particular who were looking at, like, how do you get people interested in serious issues through games? And then uh, sports studies slash, like, leisure studies. So, like, you and I were reading a thing that was on, like, the flow of golf. We were talking about that the mm -hmm. other day. Um, so it seems like it kind of worked its way into early game studies through that, right? Of just people, uh, who were in, um, in sports, which makes sense. There's like a chapter on sport basically in this book. Um, and so, so people who, who got involved in it through its direct kind of work and then people who were in psychology in particular, who were just looking for ways of describing what happens when you play a game. Um, and, uh, and then from there, it just kind of became, you know, I think Genova Chen's master's thesis has a whole lot to do with it and flow, the success of flow and flower. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but I mean, I don't think, I mean, it really, 
as you said earlier, right, it describes literally everything that happens to a human as long as you have some sort of intentionality to it. Um, and so it almost functions in the same way that like Arces ergodicity does, right? Which is that like, if you choose to, to do something, then it therefore becomes basically ergodic or it can be read or interpreted ergodically. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're choosing to do something, it can be read through the mechanism of flow. And if you don't choose to do it necessarily, but, but I think in games, that's generally where it kind of, um, shakes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think it is, it is interesting that both Kawa and Huizinga get mentioned here because, uh, obviously we, those are both authors that we've read, authors that we've worked with for this podcast, and they are authors very well established in game studies. Um, if there is one thing that this book or this movement, this research does that I think is useful in terms of game studies is that it in fact, uh, suggests that the things that make games games uh, are not unique to games, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, mm-hmm. What I mean there is uh, rather like the the what uh, what Csikszentmihalyi calls the autotelic experience can describe a game, right? It can describe chess uh, or or playing a video game, right? One more turn or whatever, um, but it doesn't have to. Right, there can be a whole number of things that we attach to in the ways that we seem to get attached to games, and that's kind of interesting to me. Um, but I don't know, like I don't think that that's how this work has been taken up within game studies, right? And it's not even a thing that Csikszentmihalyi himself is interested in. In the 1975 book, one of the things he says early on is like, it seems that we can, like he, he straight up says, right, like human beings have the potential to make just about everything part of a flow state. Um, and instead of just sort of thinking like, well, what does that mean for this concept that I've, I've, uh, developed here, right? Uh, instead of thinking through the implications of that, uh, instead starts focusing on like, what is, what is the best type of flow or what are the, what are the proper conditions or the, the, the best conditions under which to incite flow rather than looking at what I think is the most important thing, which is that like people can focus on whatever the hell they want. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that if there is a, like a takeaway from the book, right. Uh, on one hand, you know, the takeaway is good God, the, the things you have to believe to get to flow as, as like a commanding, you know, theory for the world. Uh, but the other takeaway, yeah, is absolutely like, I, I don't, I've never, you know, that's not saying this work doesn't exist. I'm, I, I really want to read it. Please send it to me if, if you know this work, but um, about negative flow, you know, the, this kind of Eichmann example that's, you know, uh, very extreme, um, you know, places where flow happens and it is not for like, you know, making Overwatch a good video game, um, mm-hmm. but but where it causes, you know, active harm to humans or, or uh, becomes kind of a, a downward spiral. I mean, because I can absolutely think about, you know, like Twitter beefs as, as a flow state. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you see people who just cannot walk away and are, and are quote unquote, as they say, tweeting through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, you know, if, um, if flow is the thing that Csikszentmihalyi says it is, then I, that that's looking like, from my perspective, someone who's kind of forgotten everything other than the, than the beef for that 12 hours. Well, um, in, in the 1990 book, he gives an example of like a woman who's, she's a businesswoman of some type, um, who, who is so good at flow 
that mm. she works through her lunches and forgets to eat lunch. And that's presented as a good thing. Uh, is that also the woman who can turn off her brain? Something for 30 like minutes that, in the morning. Uh, there's somewhere early in the book where he's like, uh, she just goes out on the like the lake shore every morning and literally turns off her consciousness. Um, <laughs> and um, yes, okay. yes, yes. Uh, yeah, she gets a, a. She's so good at concentrating on her work, she forgets to eat lunch. Mm-hmm. Which again, if we're going to talk about like flow experiences or like things that I've had that might be flow experiences, I have like been so involved in what I am doing that I have like, you know, not eaten lunch or like I have ended up eating lunch late. And this is not because what I was doing was so pleasurable to me and so rewarding for me that I just couldn't bear to step away from writing my friggin' dissertation chapter or whatever. It yeah, was absolutely right it was just like it was a thing i had to do <laughs> yeah uh, yeah there are play, uh, dissertation uh, writing is a great example of that any kind of publication writing for me is a big part of that editing you know i edit a lot of audio and video editing is a big part of that there are many things where i'm sitting i mean you know right now i'm sitting here i'm extremely hungry because i just didn't eat lunch because i was working and doing some other stuff it's not because i was absorbed and finding it so happy it's just like a thing i need to do it's mm-hmm. like i had a time limit and i knew i needed to get some stuff done before we recorded and i did it instead of eating like i don't i i didn't find that pleasurable i wasn't having a good time doing it i was aware that i was hungry the whole time um you know and i had to do it so I don't, you know, maybe that's just the drudgery of, um, you know, of work that I need to liberate myself from, need to bootstrap my way into enjoying uh, sitting and editing video files. But, um, you know, that's not that's not where I'm at. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I just don't. I and again, right, this is not like I'm not saying and I don't think and you're not saying either, Michael, right, that like these states of attachment or immersion or involvement don't exist we're just saying that the uh, set of assumptions to get to what we call something like flow and the the line of proof to get there is extremely suspect Mm -hmm. not that you can be absorbed in something which i think is just a truism i think Mm -hmm. people can be absorbed in things um but that certainly doesn't happen to me in video games certainly doesn't happen to me in any of the work situations that he's talking about um, you know, maybe I, I've done a bit of daydreaming in my life before, but even that I wouldn't consider flow necessarily. Um, but flow so is an I, example of day or, or daydreaming is an example of flow. I, I know. Yeah. Dear and I was like, I, I, uh, I read this book and I went outside and I was reading a different book. Uh, and, uh, and I just looked up for a few minutes. I was staring at a tree and I was thinking about the book. And like, I wasn't a flow state. I wasn't absorbed in that, like perfectly or anything. I was just thinking about, okay, well, if the argument of the book goes this way, then, then, then therefore this other thing is true. I was fully aware of where I was and how much time that was taking and what I was doing. I was working, but I was just staring off into the distance thinking about it. I don't, is that, is that flow? (laughs) Just thinking? Right. Well, and this is one of the questions that I posed to you, right? Is, is, is like, to what extent is flow just a description of the experience of being conscious, right? Yeah. Having all of these competing uh, things that you can only focus so much of your attention on at any given moment and sort of like shifting between them. Yeah. Yeah. I think ultimately, I think that's a great, you know, kind of uh, way of, of getting, you know, kind of um, borders around the question because, yeah, I, you know, it's ultimately like, 
uh, is flow as a concept just parasitic mm-hmm. to, to you know to consciousness? Is it is it drawing weird lines around things that we that are like testable and maneuverable and look addable? Um, and again, like you know, over the couple of days or since yesterday when I was kind of tweeting about this and doing it, some people have sent me some like kind of flow information. I've read some uh, like neuroscientific stuff around flow, and uh, it the results that come out of that. If you if you take the word flow out and literally call it anything else, it doesn't change the way that those results come out, right? So if mm-hmm. I called it just um, uh, practice, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? If I called the the pleasurable state of getting better at playing Overwatch, if I just called that practice instead of flow, and I said that good practice came from the practice state, um, <laughs> how much would that change a lot of the, you know, kind of neuropsychological and psychological research around flow? I don't, based on what I've read, it really wouldn't. It wouldn't change it in any significant way. And so it seems to me that that hanging on to flow as a descriptor and hanging on to flow as a kind of big, broad um, tool for discussing these things, as opposed to just talking about the thing as it happens and what is happening and describing materially what is happening, I don't think you get much out of flow that that you're not getting somewhere else. So I think, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like I am like, Flow is out for me. I don't think it is useful. I don't think that... uh, I think there are a thousand ways to describe the things that Flow describes well without the baggage of the thing that proves the system of Flow to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, that stage we were talking about, those bricks, those boards, those nails, all those are bad. We can build that stage with other theories, other ways of talking about the subject, the self, things like that. You know, flow, Flow is not for me. Agreed. I I just I I come away from this book like thinking if if you are a person who is into game studies and you're into this idea of flow, um, I don't know if it's worth it. Like reading this whole book, right? Maybe read the first four chapters. Uh, but even then, please, please take them with the the most grains the, the most grains of salt you could possibly fit into into your taking, right? Uh, Keep in mind all of the things that we have talked about, all of the assumptions that are being made uh, that underpin the overall claim that flow is a sort of distinct cognitive experience and that it is something that can be cultivated, is worth cultivating, uh, and pay very close attention to the way that it is also constantly shifting, that it is simultaneously a thing that um, almost reads is like the elimination of consciousness right when you are in a flow state you're not look you're not thinking about other tasks that you have to do you're focusing completely on the task at hand um there is no excess this is a thing that that he says there is no excess psychic energy uh to bother you um it is simultaneously that but it is also like your ability to consciously induce that feeling and order it um it is also something that is like deeply pleasurable with no real like clear reward um but it is also a thing that you do when you're on the assembly line right it is also a way of measuring or uh, increasing your productivity uh and and things like that right there's there's uh, something very strange and amorphous that flow is doing um that I just think, you know, it, it raises a lot of flags for me as as like a, a scholar, as an intellectual or whatever. Uh, and then the, actually reading through this stuff does not do anything but raise those flags higher. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, I find it very difficult to read, you know, 
I, I find it very difficult to read the thing and not, you, you know, it almost every turn of proof think, well, either, well, what about X, Y, Z? Or looking at the example and thinking, well, the the way that this is being read is, is boggling. We said we were going to kind of ask each other questions, but weirdly enough, the, the things that we ended up talking about here uh, addressed a bunch of those questions. So I think, I think we're, uh, you know, we, uh, our, our, our method was inside the whole mm-hmm. time. And that's that. What are we reading next time? I don't know. What do you, what do you want to read? I, I've, I've floated two things. Mm-hmm. We can make a choice here. Both of them, both of them are going to be, I'll leave this in. Both of them are going to be read at some point in the future. Um, but both of them are kind of non-canonical, right? Flow, very canonical, very, very much a thing that people talk about, very much a thing that shows up kind of constantly in games. Um, these are not. So one is a new book called Surrealism at Play. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, it's in, it's on a, on a table in another room. Um, so I, so I can't say the author, uh, but, uh, it's about, it's a, uh, art history of surrealism and its relationship to play, mm-hmm. which is the thing I'm, I'm personally very interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the a, other... Susan Laxton is the author on that. Just shout out. Susan Laxton. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then the, uh, the other book is that, that I pitched is, uh, Jacques Ranciere's The Ignorant Schoolmaster, which came <laughs> up, I think in the last episode, um, but, uh, but I think would be a good, a good game or, or not a good game, a, a good book to think of through the, um, through like what it could offer game studies, right? So that's like a real, you know, uh, far out, far out left field. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but we could do surrealism at play. You've already purchased it, correct? I have. Yeah. Okay. We can do that. If you want to hear us read Ron Sears, the ignorant schoolmaster, uh, tweet at us about it. Say, Hey. I want to hear that. But if you don't want us to read Ron Sears, Ignorant Schoolmaster, say don't read that book. But mm-hmm. but yeah, let's do Surrealism at Play. Um, uh, we'll we'll do that. It's from Duke University Press. Uh, it's a little, uh, I mean, not hyper expensive. It's a paperback, so so it's not super expensive. But um, it's got like a, a lot of printed art in it. Uh, it's an art history book. It's all I think mostly printed on photo paper, so it's a little bit more expensive. Uh, you got an ebook. Was was the ebook expensive? Uh. I got it when it was Duke University Press was running a sale, so mm, it was not right. expensive. But uh, I don't know so, what yeah. it. No, the ebook's not expensive at all. Okay, um, so check that out. You know, if you want to read along with us, we're going to be recording that next. Uh, it'll be for next month. It'll be for June. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Warren is Dead. You can go to twitter.com slash rangetouch to find out about all the other things that we do. You can go to rangetouch.com to see additional stuff. You can buy t-shirts there too if you're interested in doing that. <laughs> and uh, you can go to, uh, as always, you can go to patreon.com slash rangetouch uh, in order to support us for as little as a dollar a month. At $5 a month, you get access to an additional podcast. Uh, you get uh, a Let's Play that I'm running um, on Vice City. You for three dollars a month, you get access to our notes for the show uh, that we both individually take. Uh, I've I've been we were talking about before on mic before uh, that we started the episode, but I've been like kind of uh, shoddy on doing that. Uh, uh, but we're gonna fix that very soon. Uh, so if you want to read all the notes that we take of all the things that just don't fit in the show, um, that's that's a way of doing it. Um, and it really does help out. I mean, we're trying to to grow continually as as a uh, media. Uh, enterprise uh, we're trying to do more stuff um we're the, becoming more the, and more complex all the time 
we're trying to become more complex. Uh, we're getting, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to just like, I'm putting that right in front of me, right? I'm saying I got to find little goals, right? Mm-hmm. Little small goals. And those little goals are you supporting us on Patreon. So, <laughs> um, uh, so, so uh, yeah, anyway, if you enjoy the show, please consider doing that. Um, and next week we'll be reading Surreal- Surrealism at Play. Bleh. Surrealism at Play by Susan Laxton. Um, Did you just say next week? No, well, I might have next next time, uh, <laughs> okay. next next month. Uh, I'll be we'll be doing that. And Michael's starting a let's play soon. When's that start? Is that July? Maybe. Uh, maybe yes. Mm, interesting, interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, youtubecom slash touch if you want to check all that stuff out. Um, you know, including our Fallout show. I've been talking for a long time here at the end. Um, remember what's the catchphrase. Yep. Yep. Remember, remember, folks, the social is predicated upon its exclusions. The end. <laughs>